to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickubellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. Here we go. I had my mic turned off. Curtis, can you hear me now? Okay, I hopefully someone can hear me out there. Uh, I had my mic turned off. I apologize for that. So let's start all over again. <laughs> and welcome to the catastrophe that we call Southern Sense. After 14 years, you think I could get this show started just once, just right. <laughs> I'm your hostess with the least most is the radio chickadee, Annie. And hopefully I've got my, my co-host C.S. Bennett with us. Curtis, are you with us? And I'm getting no sound from Curtis. Okay, Bigfoot says he can hear me, but we are not getting anything from Curtis. So hopefully he can dial back in and get on the air with us. Uh, we have been having problems with Blog Talk Radio over the past few weeks. And as I said, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I got a message from them saying they were having technical difficulties. But hopefully everything should be up and working well today. Well, we got little green men in the chat room instead of our normal <laughs> avatars. Uh, but it's interesting. I uh, can't tell one one person from another because <laughs> you have no idea who's out there and who's in the chat room. Anyway, welcome again back to Southern Sense. We've got ourselves a great show lined up. And this is Curtis telling me that he cannot hear. Uh, well, hopefully Curtis will be able to dial back in. And I forgot to mute my own phone. I mute my mic, but not my, my telephone. Genius, Andy. Genius. Anyway, um, we have great guests coming in. Anne-Marie Burkle. She is a former congresswoman and the commissioner uh, of the Consumer Protection Consumer Product Safety Commission. Uh, we also have Peter C. Earle, who is a senior economist at the uh, AIR. Um, we're going to have to have great guests on. But uh, let's get ourselves on the show and rolling again. Those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And this show is being dedicated to uh, Police Officer Jonah Oswald of Fairway Police Department out of Kansas City. I'm not saying out of Kansas City, out of Kansas, the state of Kansas. His end of watch was Monday, August 7th of this year. And the first article is from KCTV5 by Gabe Schwartz and Melanie McBride. And they write, a police pursuit for a stolen vehicle that hit a police car started at one quick trip location and ended at another with an officer-involved shooting that killed a suspect and left a fairway police officer with critical injuries. The Lenexa Police Department said at about 7.30 a.m. that Sunday, a stolen vehicle call came in 
dispatching officers to the quick trip located at 95th Street and I-35. Officers located that car, and the suspect struck one of the LPD patrol cars in the stolen vehicle. It doesn't matter the type of call, the nature of the call. I mean, any time there is, is shots fired. It's a very tragic thing, said Lenexa police spokesperson Danny Chavez. Despite what many people think, we don't put on the badge every day looking to get into that type of an encounter. Police said they pursued the suspect northbound on I-35 highway until the suspect wound up at the quick trip on Lamar Avenue. Fairway Chief of Police J.P. Thurlow issued a statement via email in regard to the officer that was shot. He wrote, As you are aware, one of our police officers was shot and critically wounded this morning while trying to make an arrest in a neighboring community. Upon hearing the call for assistance, our officer courageously and without hesitation responded to help. Those brave actions are reflective of the men and women in law enforcement in our community and throughout this country who put on the badge knowing the potential dangers they may face in the course of their duties. J.P. Thurow further stated, At this time, the officer's condition remains critical. We will have more information about the officer in the coming days. Tonight, I ask for thoughts and prayers for the officer and his family and request privacy for the officer's family and for the Fairway Police Department. We are grateful for those who have already expressed their support for our department and who will in the days ahead. Gunfire was exchanged between the suspects and law enforcement and one of the officers was struck. The officer, a member of the Fairway Police Department, was taken to a hospital with critical injuries. He was pronounced dead on Monday. Officers also reported that one of the car theft suspects, 40-year-old Shannon Wayne Marshall of Ashland City, Tennessee, was shot and declared dead. Andrea Renee Colthring, a 32-year-old from Gottslettville, Tennessee, was arrested and charged with aggravated assault. Also, from the KCTV5 staff, they wrote, A crime scene that left one person dead Sunday in mission has claimed the life of a police officer. The Fairway Police Department announced on Monday that 29-year-old Fairway Police Department officer Jonah Oswald died from his injuries after he was critically wounded in a shooting Sunday morning. Oswald was a four-year veteran of the Fairway Police Department. I am brokenhearted at the tragic loss of Officer Jonah Oswald, who made the ultimate sacrifice while carrying out his oath to serve and protect, Fairway Chief of Police J.P. Thurow said in a statement released Monday night. Officer Oswald was an integral part of our team and made significant contributions to our department and to the Fairway community. We will remember him as a warm-hearted individual whose hard work and passion touched the lives of many. On behalf of the entire Fairway Police Department and the City of Fairway, I extend our deepest sympathies and heartfelt condolences to Officer Oswald's family and friends. We recognize that their loss is immeasurable and our thoughts and prayers are with them. Oswald leaves behind a wife and two young children. 
According to police, the next officers were made aware of a stolen car at a quick trip location at 95th Street and I-35 at about 7.30 a.m. on August 6th. When they arrived, the driver of the stolen vehicle struck a police car and drove off heading north at I-35. The stolen vehicle headed to another quick trip location on Lamar Avenue, and two occupants ran inside. Multiple law enforcement agencies became involved in the response, including the Kansas Highway Patrol, the Mission Police Department, and the Fairway Police Department. And finally, from KansasCity.com by Maddie Gelman. And he writes, A photo of, fo of fallen Fairway Police Officer Jonah Oswald was displayed at a vigil at Harmon Park at 7700 Mission Road in Prairie Village. Fairway Police Chief J.P. Thurl remembered fallen officer Jonah Oswald as a loving and, quote, super smart member of the small suburban department as he spoke to a crowd gathered at night in Harmon Park. Jonah's heart radiated, and it radiated through his badge, Thurow said. He went on to praise the bravery of Oswald, who was fatally shot when a police chase turned into a shootout at a Johnson County convenience store. The death of the four-year veteran reverberated far beyond the city of its 4,000 residents, attracting hundreds to a parade and candlelight vigil honoring Oswald and his family. Thurl repeatedly referenced the very small community of Fairway, where he said the residents and police force see themselves as one. The city had never had an officer killed in the line of duty before Oswald. We really all love each other, he said. Standing in front of the doors that had been removed from a patrol vehicle Oswald had been in about a month ago when it was struck by a suspect following a chase. The suspect had rammed into Oswald's vehicle three times. Also on display was a vehicle that Oswald had been in a week ago. That incident struck in the minds of those who had gathered in Harmon Park, many of whom appeared emotional despite not knowing Oswald or being from Fairway. Katie Salmon said for family and friends of people in law enforcement, Oswald's death is a stark reminder of the sacrifices that come with the police career. She said it's a calling, and so when you make that commitment, you have to just honor and love them any way that you can. She said standing next to her husband of 20 years, a North Kansas City police officer. Her two children sat by her feet. They had come from the parade, which had begun near Shamrock Towers at around 7.30 p.m., and watched the stream of police vehicles that ended up at Harmon Park in Prairie Village about an hour later. Salmon said the children understood the event was commemorating an officer who had taken risks like those presented to their own father, who also drove a patrol car in the parade. They had witnessed similar events after a North Kansas City officer, Daniel Vasquez, was killed in a shooting last year. They know the risks, but they outweigh the rewards, she said, looking around at the large crowd of people bowing their heads and holding candles above their heads. It never surprises me, but it always touches me to see how many people come out for these things to support each other. 
Miranda Lawson struggled to hold back tears watching the procession of police in emergency vehicles with her young, curly-haired brood. She looked out at the sea of red and blue lights, clutching a picnic basket, stunned by the number of people in mourning. It's emotional, she said, wiping her tears. Really puts the job in perspective. The five-year veteran of the University of Kansas City Medical Center Police said that while she had taken part in other parades for fallen officers, Oswald's hit close to home. Fair Fairway is really close to KU. We have buildings out there and we patrol as well. They're close neighbors, which makes it hard, she said. Miranda and Zachary Lawson said they were touched by the number of people attending the parade for Fairway Police Officer Jonah Oswald. Really puts the job in perspective, Miranda Lawson said, while standing with family. The children were still learning about the sacrifices that come with a career in law enforcement when Oswald was killed. She and her husband, Zachary Lawson, had purchased children's books for their kids, explaining the work of police officers and firefighters. Her son sought to understand what the parade was meant to be celebrating. She said it was not the first police funeral he had attended. He had asked me, what was that all for, Lawson said. After explaining that an officer had been shot and killed, she said. Her son appeared shocked. He wondered, who would do that? And then I started to cry. I said, there are bad people out there. While Lawson said she loves her job and finds it rewarding, Oswald's death has prompted many difficult conversations about the dangers of her work with fellow officers and family. It's all mixed feelings, Zachary Lawson said. It's just part of the daily dinner table talk. Oswald, a 29-year-old husband and father of two young children, previously worked with the Buckner Police Department, where officers remembered him for his light-hearted and optimistic personality. He joined the Fairway Police as part of a small, hand-selected group, according to Thoreau. The department has fewer than 10 officers. Thurlow said Oswald would often stroll by his office and playfully request more tasks to keep him busy. If he had seen the Saturday parade, Thurlow said, Oswald would have thought it was, quote, very cool and made jokes about the people who arrived holding their signs upside down. If anything happened, we'd want Jonah to show up, said Kenneth Johnson, a friend and member of the Fairway Police. Last Sunday morning, Oswald was among the officers responding to a situation that began with a stolen vehicle report with two suspects, a man and a woman. The next of police chased the stolen SUV, whose driver allegedly rammed a patrol vehicle, until the suspects bailed out and ran into the mission quick trip. A parade of first responder vehicles left from 93rd Street and Metcalf Avenue in Oberlin Park that Saturday night in honor a fallen fairway police officer, Jonah Osbold. The vehicles drove through Overland Park, Mission, Fairway, and Prairie Village. The procession ended at Harmon Park in Prairie Village, where a candlelight vigil took place. A parade of first responder vehicles left from 93rd Street, where a candlelight village took place. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Jonah Oswald. 
It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. And we dedicate to them this song from Tiffany, Soul of a Nation. May God bless each and every one. Sorry. It seems like Blog Talk Radio still has problems with their equipment here. I'm unable to play the dedication song by Tiffany. So instead, let me pull this up. And I can get this from Richard Lynch. We're American proud. Got American pride. We stand side by side. Side. We talk clearly loud. We're American proud. California to Maine. Our freedom the same. From the backwoods to the big towns. We're American proud. It seems like self driving power. They put it the mind. All our farmers and friends who stay never ends with our soldiers in mind. Soldiers. They leave no one behind. No one our heads bowed, American proud. Get the pride in there's no way to the sky. No, you can't keep us down. Very good. They put in the mind all our farmers and friends who stay never in with our soldiers in mind. They leave no one behind. No one. To God, we keep our hands bowed. We're American proud. We're American proud. We're American proud. founding fathers of our beloved nation and the growth of Christ's church share some inspiring parallels. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, consider the U.S. founding fathers gathered at Independence Hall on July 4, 1776 to establish a nation that would be a beacon of hope and freedom to countless millions throughout the generations. Similarly, Christ's disciples gathered in Jerusalem to establish a church destined to take the hope of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts accounts 
the bold steps of faith the apostles took via the power of Holy Spirit. God used them to establish an ever-growing community of believers that models Christian virtue and faith in this dark, sin-filled world. Just as the Founding Fathers did, those early Christians faced many brutal challenges, dangers, and stiff opposition. But by God's grace, as well as with prayer, hard work, and a steadfast reliance on Almighty, they took the truth to, of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Even today, the gospel of Jesus is the only hope for peace upon which individuals or nations can rely. May we the people once again soon reside in a republic under God with liberty and justice for all. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RonEdwards.com. Radio SH on media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, oh, good Lord, uh, Amazon Music, uh, and half a dozen other places wherever I am. Curtis, are we back here? you with me today? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you now. We got you now. <laughs> what All right. Can I ever, in the 14 years I've been doing this, do you think I can ever start a show off without technical difficulties? Not. Not with BTR. It, oh. It's apparent that they're, they're having some technical issues that um, I cannot explain why they, 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 they can't resolve them in a week. I mean, they had this since last week, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, I did forget to unmute my mic at one point when I started off the show. And I looked down after I'm talking about two, three minutes with blank air. So that part, I will admit that was my fault. Hey, I'm not too proud. But, uh, I mean, oh, okay. you, can't, you can't play any of the audio clips that you upload onto their website. Um, I have to rely on using a second computer to shoot it through my mixer board. And... Um, my mixer board is 14 years old, so maybe I may need to have to look at replacing it. But this is this is crazy. This this is absolutely nuts. Um, we de we definitely have to do something about this. Uh, what I have been thinking of, we do have a guest booked for next week, but I'm going to push them over into next year and take an extra week off uh, just uh, to try to work out some of these technical difficulties and try to bypass Blog Talk Radio. I don't know what else to do. I really don't. I mean, they started off with a wonderful platform all those years ago, but they have not kept up with the technology. Uh, they haven't maintained the website the way they should. Uh, and if you look at the number of people that are uh, broadcasting through BTR, the number is dwindling. So uh, maybe that's that's the whole thing. <laughs> they may be going under. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, maybe they don't think it's worth the effort to... Uh... To make these um, changes, I don't know. Hey, with what I pay a month for subscription fees to these people, ugh, you know, I'm not getting my money's worth. That's for damn sure. That is for damn sure. Anyway, That's right. um, we do have two great guests that will be calling in. Anne Marie Burkle, a former congresswoman from the state of New York. Believe it or not, they do have Republicans still in the state of New York. Uh, she was also, uh, before I screw this up, because I did this already, I screwed up once before. She was the uh, commissioner and the acting chairwoman of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And we're going to be talking to her about Obozocare and other things. And then we also have an, uh, the economic uh, professor, Peter C. Earle, who's going to be joining us. Um, he's got an, a, a degree 
in economics and engineering. And catch this, from the University of uh, Angers, which is in France, uh, an MA in Applied Economics from the American University, an MBA in Finance, and a BS in Engineering from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Holy cow, I'm afraid to even stand in the same room with him. <laughs> His brains will burn me apart. Wow. <laughs> well, maybe he can explain to me um, Biden economics because uh, a, a box of cereal costs what, five something? That, uh, I don't understand this, mm -hmm. this Biden economy. I need yeah. some, somebody to explain it to me, like I was five years old or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, a loaf of bread, when Trump was in office, you get the store brand, the generic brand, 99 cents. Now you're paying upwards to $3 for that same loaf of bread. Uh, gasoline. The week before the election, I tanked, I filled my car up at $1.89 a gallon. And you're lucky if you get it at two eighty nine a gallon. It is absolutely insane. But we'll be talking to uh, to uh, Peter Earle about the economics. In the interim, we've got uh, Obozo Care, and I do hope that this is our guest. Am I speaking to Anne Marie? Yes, you are. It's Anne Marie Burkle. Well, Anne Marie, I have to say thank you very much. You spell your name correctly because that's how I spelled my name. So, Anne Marie, welcome to Anne Marie. <laughs> Clean and neat. <laughs> we should be able to remember. We should be able to remember each other's names. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I was surprised to see that you are a congresswoman from New York, and I fled New York back on Super Bowl Sunday, two thousand one, just before Hillary Clinton was sworn in as your senator. <laughs> I am now in the state of South Carolina, <laughs> the red state of yes. South Carolina. <laughs> You are a very smart, wise woman. <laughs> but what hap has happened to my native New York? You used to know you went out to Long Island, and it was the hotbed of Republicanism. And you, I can't even recognize it anymore. You go upstate where you're from, and it would be also pure red. But now it's 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 crazy. Uh, you have a governor that I don't even know if she's on the same planet, much less the mayor of New York City. Holy moly. Now, I served under Rudy Giuliani, and I wasn't overly pleased with him with some of the things he did, like trying to cut our contract for the police department. But he still did good for the city. I mean, I served under Mayor Dinkins, or we had another name for him, and it was a part of the male anatomy that was less. <laughs> <laughs> And that was when the police commissioner was out of town, yeah. Brown. <laughs> but oh my word! So I'm I, I'm harkening back to when the city we we worked hard to clean it up, and I, I didn't even I can't even recognize New York State anymore. But there's hope. There is hope. I don't know if you saw the Newsmax interview, uh, where one of the uh, the persons went out onto the street interviewing people in the South Bronx asking if they support Trump. And she said within 20 minutes, every single person she asked was supporting Trump. Maybe there is hope for the state of New York. Well, I think things have gotten so bad between the president and our state that you think, you know, President Trump knew how to run this country and, and we need different leaders to make this country to get it back on course because we've steered 
so far from where we have been. Uh, it's just very sad, quite frankly. It's very sad and it's very frightening uh, to see what's happening both in New York State and uh, on the federal level as well. Yeah, well, that's... and you know, I feel ter- terribly, terribly sorry for Rudy Giuliani and what he's gone through, and you know, it's just. Yeah, it's just very unfortunate. He did such a great job cleaning up New York, New York City and helping out. You know, after nine eleven, I mean, he just um, he got that city back on its feet. Yes, he did. Yes, he definitely did do that, and um, we all worked hard to do that for him. And I got to commend him for that. Um, but what it has turned into, and you would think someone that, as the mayor, was a former police officer, would know better on how to run the city and it, it, it is shameful that when the when it's a political animal they don't see the forest for the trees unfortunately and that's what we have a political animal in office there inside the governor's mansion inside uh gracie mansion and that's not what we need politics yeah, it, we, blinds we, them. it blinds them it really does but um one of the things that uh, you wanted to talk about uh is obamacare and yes, I read the House bill and the Senate bill before they were married, before Nancy Pelosi said, you got to pass it to see what's in it. So if little old tiny little me in the little tiny state of South Carolina had the time to read the both bills and see the problems in them, why didn't anyone else? Well, um, that's a very good question. Unfortunately, I think many of the Republicans did read it and... They knew it wasn't good. They predicted back then that all it would do would be to raise the cost of health care and raise the cost of premiums. And the Democrats had a majority in both the House and the Senate, and they obviously rammed it through on Christmas Eve, just a not, not a good thing. But uh, that's why in the next election cycle, 2000, so the election was 2010, uh, the Republicans picked up 65 seats because of the Affordable Care Act and a number of other things that the Obama administration had done. And the American people said, yikes, this is too much. We need to reverse course. And they elected the Republicans. Um, and many of many of us and I, as a former nurse, uh, ran against the Affordable Care Act. I was representing a teaching hospital at the time, and I thought, oh, it's not going to be good for the hospital, and it certainly isn't going to be good for patients and healthcare in general. And so that's why I ran, and uh, many of us did. There were three nurses in my class, uh, which was uh, amazing, and several doctors, and we all worked together to try to come up with a better solution healthcare. But sadly, all this many years later, we've never been able to repeal and replace it. That was unfortunate. And uh, my mom, she's 91. She lives with me. Um, she's a stroke victim. So she has to have a lot of different types of uh, medication, and it becomes very expensive especially when you have someone living on Social Security. And uh, about a month ago, I went to renew one of her prescriptions, and it jumped from $139 to $406. Now, why are we having this problem with our medications out there? Why suddenly are these medications, which people need critically to stay alive, suddenly jumping in prices? Is this because of Obamacare, or is it something else in the marketplace? I think it's a combination of, of both things. Um, first of all, 
you've got uh, inflation, you've got rampant inflation. And this is the time of year when people go to their health care plans, they re-enroll, they try different plans. And what they've noticed is their premiums have gone up 7% this year. Now, inflation was about uh, 5.8 and wages went up about 5.2. So the American people are hurting and cost of energy, the cost of fuel for your car, the cost of food. This time of the year, people are aware they're trying to Christmas shop. Everything's more expensive. So you've got the inflation piece of it. Um, and that's, of course, from printing a lot of money uh, and really devaluing the dollar. And that's you know what's come out of this administration. But then beyond that, you've got the Affordable Care Act, the effects of the Affordable Care Act. And then you've got Congress working to even make that worse. And so that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, and, and it's something that really I have been on a bandwagon for the last several months talking about Republicans need a health care agenda. They need to address this issue for the American people, because just as you're pointing out with your mom, it's on everyone's mind and it's something that affects everyone, whether you have an illness in your family or whether you just have a healthy family. Everyone has noticed the cost of health care has just really dramatically increased. Well, there's something else I've seen in the market um, because trying to get an appointment to see your doctor, and there's, this is something new that they've been pulling. If you hadn't seen the doctor in the last year, suddenly you're treated as if you're a new patient. But I even had someone say, well, you haven't seen him in the last three years. And I said, you're about maybe about a week off, but I have seen him in the last, th- no, you're treated as a new patient. And this is a, really a new phenomenon that I've been seeing, but it happens to have go on with a lot of doctors that are now affiliated with the hospital and i'm seeing the hospitals are scooping up all these practices and now to try to even get in to see your doctor instead you're shoveled over to a nurse practitioner or a technician and you rarely see a doctor anymore this is this, this is a, a new phenomenon i've been seeing yeah well and i, I great point um and i think Part of that is the results of the Affordable Care Act again. And they promised health care um, for all, but when you've got reimbursements for family practitioners and pediatricians and internists and, you know, psychology or psychiatry, the not so, um, I'll call them sexy practices like surgeons and, you know, um, anesthesia and the, the reimbursements for those, that group, the first group, is very low. So it's a deterrent from getting people to go into those practices because you can't even, you know, you can't break even if you're taking out huge loans for medical school and then you're making that salary. So that's that's really the first piece um, there. It's the Affordable Care Act affected what you're talking about. But then you've raised another really good point, and that point is the fact that right now and over the last several years, hospitals are merging and they're becoming big conglomerates. Now, when I trained many, many years ago, I trained as a nurse. And I trained at St. Joseph's uh, Hospital in Syracuse, New York. Great hospital, neighborhood hospital, about 400 beds. Really kind of state-of-the-art for the time. Now, since then, that hospital has been purchased by Trinity Health. So now it's part of a, an 88-hospital system. And to your point, they're buying up physician practices, and they're working for this Trinity Health, not for themselves. So number one, um, they have to produce, so it's much more of a 
instead of a fee for service, they are salaried by the by the hospital by the healthcare system. But with the hospitals themselves, now that there's such big systems, um, a lot of things happen. One thing that happens is they have increased leverage when they're negotiating with the insurance company about what they're going to charge for a procedure. And so for a sonogram, say, they can name their price and the healthcare plan says, well, that's high. And they say, well, if you want your patients and members who participate in your plan to be able to get a sonogram in this geographic area, that's what you got to, you know, that's what you got to pay. So that piece is driving up. They have a lot more leverage than they used to be when they were a standalone hospital. The other thing is we're seeing is you go in and you see your physician who works for this practice and it's, it's called dishonest billing. And, and you go in and you see your physician and in your mind, I've visited my physician. I've had a, an appointment with him. But the hospital then bills the insurance company for the hospital rate, not the physician rate. And the hospital rate is always much higher. And so that's a practice called dishonest billing. And it really is something Congress can address. They should be addressing it right now. And as a matter of fact, uh, Congressman Hearn from Oklahoma introduced legislation um, to deal with this, this dishonest billing and to make sure there's far more transparency with how hospitals bill, how they treat, and, and all of that, that. Because as you point out, hospitals are the main driver of the increase in healthcare costs. And it's, it's the mergers and acquisitions which leads to more waste, fraud, and abuse because they're bigger systems now. It's this dishonest billing. And so that's, that's one of the biggest drivers uh, of the cost of healthcare. It is so frustrating though, um, because now, it, it, I grew up in an era, I'm not too much younger than you are, in an era where you went over to your family doctor. He worked out of his house. Um, it was like $35 a visit. And if you didn't have the cash on you, hey, listen, get, pay me $5 a month and you know, you'll work it off. No big deal. You can't do that now with any, any uh, doctor visit. You have to pay in front. You have to give them their copay in front or whatever. What happens to a person that can't afford that? And it, it, God forbid you don't have insurance. It's impossible. The only thing they tell you to do is go to the emergency room because all emergency rooms must admit you. They must see you. Well, that's the federal law. However, you're assigning the emergency room to act as if they're the family doctor now, which makes it harder for real emergency cases to get the priority they truly need. They have fouled this system so badly up I don't know if we ever really can recover, can we? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think nothing is not salvageable, but it really, first of all, healthcare has become so incredibly complicated from the days when you would go to your, or they would make house calls, or you'd go to the physician's office, which happened to be on the other side of his house, and, and it's just become so incredibly complicated and a very big, big business, right? And, really a substantial part of the of the economy and the GDP. So, I mean, that's it's just so much different than it used to be. Um, and it is something that, um, again, these hospital mergers are not helping um, and they really need to be looked at. And um, there needs to be a lot more transparency with, um, with hospital billing. And to your point about emergency rooms, and now we're seeing it with this huge influx of uh, illegal immigrants, 
you they you cannot be turned away. There's a federal law called EMTALA, which is the emergency room treatment law, and you if you go to an emergency room, you must be seen. And so that's what's happening. Emergency rooms are becoming a primary care um, situation, and people are going there for their ordinary care, which obviously affects those who are in a true emergency crisis and they need emergency room care. So, uh, yeah, it's it's gotten complicated, and it's not on a good track as, as we sit here today. Oh, and go ahead, hey, this is this is co-host Sam. Yeah, listening to... Annie and you too. It kind of reminds me of a movie called Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox, where he he's on his way to be a big time um, doctor in Los Angeles, and um, he gets stuck in a small town here in Florida, Micanopy. And the difference, the contrast is just so so stark, you know, from the big city to how doctors and how they treat, you know, people um, in the, the the small towns of America. It's just so, so, I don't know. I, I, I'm with the VA system now, and the, the VA has, you know, gotten a lot of pushback and bad press, but I would have to say that they, they have made significant improvements to the point where your doctor will call you, and it does give you that small-town feel. Um, when, you know, you, you're dealing with people who seem like they're really concerned about you um, versus like a big city type, you know, environment, medical environment. What are your well, thoughts on that? Well, there is there is a problem there, well, Anne-Marie. We're finding now the rural areas are losing the medical staff because they are going towards the hospital systems. So actually it's a detriment to the rural, the rural medical system, right? Yeah. Oh, no, no question. I want to um, just comment on the VA system. And first of all, thank you for your service. If you qualify for the VA services, you've, you've served in some uh, way. Um, thank you. But Pre- President Trump, President Trump really prioritized veteran health care. And he, he thought it was just that important and put in the provision that if he couldn't be seen at a VA health care facility, Soon enough, you could make your own appointment out in the private sector. Um, and that is nothing less than the, the veterans deserve. They need to be seen. And actually, when I was in Congress on the Veteran Affairs Committee, I was the chairman of the subcommittee on health. And, um, you know, you just, the frustrations within that bureaucracy, um, and that was a bipartisan issue. And you still was difficult to get things done because everyone supported the veterans. No one would ever think to cut or, you know, to make any, take anything away from the veteran services, but that's, it was still difficult um, to really get things done. But um, it is, it, healthcare has changed and how else to say it, Um, to your point about the um, physicians and that working for the healthcare systems. So now they've got, you know, if you're working for a hospital, that hospital system can say to you, okay, we want you to see 20, 30 patients in a day. It becomes much more like peaceful, you know, uh, peace work. Is that, is that the right word? Um, than it is, um, you know, than, than going in, fee for service, having that personal relationship with the patient. So much of that is gone. Um, and, and that's what people feel in healthcare. Not only is it more expensive, but it's less personal. It's 
um, you know, much more difficult. And obviously part of that is because healthcare has really morphed into a very uh, complicated, I mean, there are tests and cures and all kinds of medicines that 30 or 40 or 50 years ago didn't exist. So now it's become a very complicated system. And some of that is good, right? We want to be able to have cures and able to treat things that we couldn't treat years ago. But it's still, um, there are things that Congress can do um, they can they really to help address these issues. And as I say, hospitals are the biggest driver of health care costs. And then followed by drugs. Drugs are another um, driver of the cost, to your point earlier, Annie. Um, you know, and you see, you go in and you see the uh, drug prices have gone up. Well, again, there's a lot of things that can be done. Uh, Senator Lee introduced legislation, and it is to get rid of some of the red tape. So if there is a name brand drug and then there is a generic or a bioidentical that does the exact same thing as that drug, name brand drug, um, his bill would reduce the red tape to get that generic or bioidentical drug approved. And that would significantly lower the cost of um, drugs because now you've got not all name brand, but you've got some generics and some bioidenticals in the marketplace. Um, what, what we see is when the government gets involved, they don't encourage free market principles. They don't push competition. They go in with their fiats and their rules and regulations and say, this is the way it's going to be. And unfortunately, it's always the patient that gets hurt in, that, in those decisions. Um, and where we started this conversation was with the Affordable Care Act. And We've seen that it only really has only uh, increased the cost of healthcare premiums, and now some of what they're offering in the House and in the Senate is what we like to say is the uh, Affordable Care Act for drugs. They want to um, they're working against what's called a pharmacy benefit manager, which are PBMs. Um, they're making you know they want to keep the drugs uh, as expensive and looking at things like capping insulin, which really won't work, but those things don't really lower the costs of healthcare or drugs. It, it increases because you always need the free market. When there's competition, companies will, you know, battle it out in the marketplace, and and the consumer will make this, the decision, and they'll go with what's cheapest and what's best, and, and that's what the government never does. Absolutely, absolutely. But there is a whole big long set of red tape and expense to develop a new drug. There really is no real true encouragement to develop new technologies, uh, new therapies in medicine uh, because it's so expensive to do it. And when they do come out with something onto the market, um, it takes them a long time to recoup their costs. That's one of the major problems, getting through the red tape. And I've had a couple of doctors, when Obamacare was passed, they said, well, they're going to hang up their shingle and go fishing because the amount of paperwork that they have to produce, it takes one solid day just to do the paperwork. Now, who can afford to run a practice and then tie up your staff one full day in just processing the paperwork? They have made it so prohibitive yeah. for a doctor to work independently that they're actually forcing them into these hospital conglomerates. No, you're absolutely right. And one of the biggest things with the Affordable Care Act were the electronic medical records. And many sole practitioners said, uh, that's just way too expensive. I just cannot, um, you know, I can't absorb that cost. 
nor do I want to as a sole practitioner. How can I learn this system, you know, and then incorporate it? If you've got a big practice handling that, it's just a lot easier. And so the electronic medical records uh, were a big driver in why so many physicians left their rural practices, left their sole practices, and then went and joined a, a hospital organization. And again, that's where you lose that personal touch, um, not with all physicians, you know, some are able to maintain the personal relationships and, and and I think most physicians do care, but now so much of it centers around the bottom line and, and the dollar amount, right? And so it, it uh, it's problematic. But you know, let me just interject this because we're talking about healthcare and how much I have really begged the Republican Party to get the healthcare agenda. And as you see, uh, saw last week, President Trump came out when he said the same thing, that we really do need a health care agenda as Republicans. Not because it's, I mean, politically it is the right thing to do, but it's the right thing to do anywhere because American people are concerned about the cost of health care and concerned about the availability of health care. Um, and so it's, if the Republicans were smart, they would start to do some of the things we've talked about. Um, in the Senate, you've got Bernie Sanders, who's, Sanders is the chair of the health committee. Now the health committee is what decides what the healthcare policy is going to be coming out of the Senate. And you got a lot of Republicans joining with Bernie Sanders. Now Bernie Sanders is a very, <laughs> I mean, he's very <laughs> honest about it. He wants to get to a single payer healthcare system. He doesn't make any bones about it. So why would a Republican follow his lead on anything? And that, that is a great concern to me. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely great concern, hence the term rhino. But uh, then again, you are a Tea Party person, and i got to tell you, since 2009, I have still continued to run our Tea Party here. So, hey, we're still around. <laughs> Us <laughs> grizzly bears. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, my God. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. That's, yeah, we... Uh... There were a lot of us, I didn't even know at the time and was not a part of any formal Tea Party group, but it was just a lot of people that year that were so concerned that President Obama and his Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate just went full speed ahead, uh, bailing out uh, automobile makers and bailing out banks and the Affordable Care Act, so many things, and the pendulum swung the other way. Now, the Republicans... Um, really have to produce this time around. And I am hoping that they will have a serious health care agenda, that they will look to see how you can really interject more free market competition and free market thinking into um, health care and keep it, keep it out of the hands of government. Uh, I think um, it, government is the least efficient, the least effective, and the most expensive route, no matter what it is. Even if it's a decent program, look at the post office. I mean, it's um, it's not equipped. It has some roles, but the the, the roles are, are national security and national defense. That's what we need to they need to focus on. But they have really forayed into many many other areas where they really really don't have any business doing. Exactly. Let the free market, you know, govern what is out there and get government off of our backs and let the free market speak. And one of the things you talk about is the certificate of need. And very few people understand what that is. Here in South Carolina, we're attempting to eliminate it. I don't know if we have succeeded yet, but um, 
this was a big, big concern because we had a hospital open up nearby and they were saying certificate of need, certificate of need. And I think we finally put that to the, the wayside. But what is a certificate of need so people understand what we're talking about? So uh, the government will make the decision whether or not that area needs the hospital and needs that facility. And that is one of the things that uh, Nikki Haley raised in one of her debates. But quite frankly, healthcare hasn't been discussed at any of those debates. But she did mention about eliminating that. And I think that's a very good place to start, again, getting the government and the bureaucracy decision-making out of it. If, uh, and, and it just works better. Everything works better when government steps aside. <laughs> You'd be amazed. Pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, don't have to pay our taxes anymore. Because <laughs> we won't have government stepping in there saying, we need money for this program or that program. No, no, no. We can take care of it on our own. And that's the problem. Our, our, we have made a society so dependent upon government that our Americans are starting to forget how it is to be independent self-sufficient and uh, how do we get ourselves back to what our founding fathers foresaw for our future no that's such a great point um and that's part of the uh, i'll say the psychology of this administration you know we can forgive student debt if we can provide this or that or subsidy on these cars or whatever it is um you get people and you in the immigration issue i think is very, very important when we talk about this. Um, but you get people hooked on the on the government, and it's very difficult to then take that that benefit away. I mean, wasn't it Ronald Reagan who said, you know, you, you can't ever get rid of a government program? And, you know, there's something to be said about that. Um, <clears throat> you get people hooked and, and uh, hooked maybe or dependent, but it's more they get used to. And, and then when they have to pay their student loan off, <clears throat> they're like incensed. Well, wow, you know, wow, why why wasn't this forgiven by the you know by the government? And first of all, government shouldn't be guaranteeing student loans anyway. But that's a different dis- <laughs> different discussion. But um, so yeah, so I it's it's this psychology where you get people used to. I think that's a better way to say it. Used to the government taking care of them, and then it's very difficult to rip that away. Um, but that's what we're seeing out of this administration. Uh, and, you know, I think about my grandparents. All four of them came to this country from Italy. And they came through Ellis Island. And they came and they lived in upstate New York. And they, my, I can remember my father saying how poor they were, but they were laborers. But to take a nickel from the government would have been like the sign of defeat. It was like, we didn't come here for that. We came here to to have a bite of the American dream. And my father's first generation, and he worked, like, and when I think about it now, you know, he he just worked all the time to try to get his kids and get them more opportunities and more um, than than he ever had. And, I mean, that's what America's about, hoping that the next generation does better than we do. But we've got problems. I mean, I think what's going on in our school systems is a big part of that problem in that the kids are getting indoctrinated as to what the role of government is. And, uh, you know, so many, so many skewed values, so many crazy things they're learning that that then 
you know, that's difficult to reverse, but we've got to start and we've got to try to do that. And I think that's why so many people, if they can afford it, will take their kids out of public school uh, and put them into a private school and why school vouchers would be so, so wonderful. Everyone can choose where they want to send their kids to school. Absolutely. We have so much more. We've got to definitely have you come back on and come back on often because you and I think exactly alike. And a matter of fact, I am only second generation American. My grandparents came from Italy and Germany. Uh, And again, you're right. It was unthinkable to accept a single dime from the government. Matter of fact, when I married my first husband, he made a comment that, oh, we don't have enough money so we we can get ourselves food stamps. And I'm like, no. I will dig ditches before I take a penny from the government. <laughs> and I did not. Never. Yeah. Yeah. But, Anne, I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And definitely, we have to get you back on. And like I said, often, you are a, a breath of fresh air. Thank you. I would love, love, love to come back. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to the both of you as well. Thanks so much for all you do. You're welcome. And you spelled your name correctly. Anne Marie spelled correct. (laughs) God bless. Correct. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas. You can catch Anne Marie up on um, Twitter, X, as it's now called. And there's a link there in the uh, uh, chat, not the chat, the show description that people can click on and read her articles and learn more about her and follow her on X. want to welcome to the show, and I hope I do have the per- proper person on the phone here, Peter C. Earl. Good afternoon, Peter. How are you today? Good. How are you? I am having fun today. If I can get past the technical difficulties, this company that we borrow time from on air could ever get their act together. <laughs> Oh my! Right. Talk, talk about economics. I'm getting the short end of the stick on this one. <laughs> it happens. It happens. It's happened to me a few times too. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, you are by by trade an economic uh, genius, I should say. Um, you've got your fingers in a lot of pies. But <laughs> I was reading uh, an article in National Review this month's National Review, and it struck a really good chord mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't understand economics. They don't understand that it's not just, you're not just talking about only just money, but about all the other things that influence money. And this article was really dead on because it was showing how politics and uh, policies that are put in place Mm -hmm. actually affects the economics in our neighborhood, our state, our nation, our world. Everything is intertwined very carefully. And once you pull the wrong thread, you yeah. can top you can topple a heck of a lot. Like shall we say we were talking about Obozo care? Yep. <laughs> yeah, so I mean anywhere where you have a where you have circumstances where policies can affect people's not just how they use resources, but how they view resources and how they determine their uses, you're going to have economic consequences. So I mean, you know, you can apply economics vastly beyond financial markets. You can look at the incentives that people face. You can look at the competing costs. You can look at opportunity costs. You just mentioned uh, health care. I mean, in all these different areas, there are economic uh, consequences. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge and very broad field that covers a, a large number of, uh, you know, a large section of our, a large portion of our daily lives. Yeah, and one of the things we have, and I know my co-host is dying to ask this question, we've got 
President Biden, sure. <laughs> President Biden touting his Bidenomics. Curtis, you want to ask the question or mm-hmm. shall I? <laughs> <laughs> well, my question is this. Um, I keep hearing how wonderful Biden economics is. But um, a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> he just threw I, I up. purchased a <laughs> he large... He just threw up. <laughs> a, a large um, container of um, Quaker Oaks and it cost me nine dollars for mm-hmm. one box of Quaker Oaks, and I'm thinking, yep. so I can go in the store and buy ten items, and it'll cost me over a hundred bucks. How is that supposed yep. to be so wonderful? That's my question. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's not. I mean, we, we've had this inflation for the last few years. The inflation we can really blame on the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the uh, you know the body of government that's responsible for monetary policy, and they're the ones who created trillions upon trillions of dollars early in the pandemic. And then we're slow to recognize that inflation was developing. They call it transitory. But where I would put some blame on the Biden administration is for in a few other areas that interact with that inflation to make it even nastier. For one thing, they have created tremendous subsidies through the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, through the Chips and Science Act, through misapplications of the Defense Production Act, and also through the tremendous creation of debt. This administration has created over $6.2 trillion worth of debt and record deficits. So all of this stuff coming together are the only, I mean, and those are really the only sort of palpable uh, sort of uh, policies that I can see be associated, being associated with economics. You know, there's inflation from the Fed, but all these other policies are certainly not helping things. Well, you know, one of the first things Biden did when he came into office, the very first thing he did was shut down our oil industry. Mm-hmm. And that in itself yep. just just was steamrolling the, the cost of all goods and services. And people fail to realize mm-hmm. petrochemicals, that there's not a single thing that you interact with during the day outside of stepping outside and breathing the fresh air that does not concern petrochemicals. From the fertilizer on your lawn to your makeup, your soap, mm-hmm. the container your milk comes in, the the vehicles you drive, the wiring, you name it, it requires petrochemicals. And we cannot survive this nation without the petrochemicals. So what do you do? You turn around and you close down the one industry that would help lower the cost of everything across the board. Yep. So that's a, that, that's a consequence of being driven by ideology instead of by economics. I mean, there are certainly some technologies out there in the very, very long run, once more efficient, you know, markets are found and once um, the resources are found in ways to make them cost effective, that could be used. But to just basically say overnight that we're going to turn off, you know, the hydrocarbons and the petrochemical industries in favor of these other things and then support them by either, you know, creating debt or by uh, subsidies is, you know, that's really, really a disservice to any citizen and any firm, you know, that uses these resources every day. Um, I, I mean, like I said, a day will come when some of these things, some of these green resources, and some of these green, you know, ways of doing business will be effective, but it's a long ways away. And to shut it off overnight, it just creates more problems, as we saw for the last two years. Yeah, and if you, if Curtis is talking about $9 for a box of Quaker Oats. I, I always use the yep. example of a, a loaf of bread. You used to get the generic white bread in mm-hmm. the store at 99 cents one week before Trump lost the election. And then the following week, it jumps through the roof. You're now paying $3 for that same loaf of bread, three times the amount. Mm-hmm. 
the, nothing else has changed. Yep. It hasn't. Ch the, the chemicals in it haven't changed. The manufacturing of it hasn't changed. Nothing has changed, but the cost to produce it because of the cost of of the chemicals, the petrochemicals, whatever you want to call them. Without that, if we just simply open back up the oil market, make ourselves self-sufficient like we were, we can go back down to a dollar eighty-nine for gas, not two eighty-nine that I just put in my tank. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing is like when you have uh, a rise in some of these uh, some of these commodity costs like oil and gas, you know, you're not only affecting the machines that make goods and services, but also you're affecting transportation. You know, the cost of transporting these things. You're you're, you're affecting the cost of uh, you know developing the technology. Uh, you know, there 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 are, there are fuel costs that go into creating uh, semiconductors, all that stuff. So you're really getting what's happening is you're really when when you make these some of these commodities more costly, you're hitting the cost of, of final goods at many different spots along the uh, the supply chain, along the production line, the term structure production. So uh, yeah, it's, it's it's something where we really should. Uh, should allow the market instead of um, ideology to dictate the production of these goods and services. Well, don't get me started on organic food, because you can't produce the organic food <laughs> without having right. the petrochemicals, because you have to package the seeds in something. You have to use some sort of a machine to plant yep. the seeds. So no matter exactly. what, you can quote as yep. organic as you want, you still are using petrochemicals. So there. But the other thing to get me started on, no one's talking about this. They haven't talked yep. about this in about 10 years. Quantitative easing. Why is it no one's talking about that when we're still undergoing it? Well, the thing is that um, with, the, uh, with the, um, uh, the, the raising of uh, interest rates and with the uh, runoff of the Fed balance sheet, we have actually had a quantitative tightening insofar as that we have the money supply shrinking at a, at a rate of about – Three, but I mean, I know this is a big range, but, but based upon which measure the money supply use, it's declining about three to ten percent annualized. Now, what that does not mean is that we are necessarily getting lower prices. It still takes a lot to act. We are actually constricting the money supply, but you still have inflation occurring. I mean, so the difference between you know two and three percent inflation is not prices one percent lower. It means prices increasing by thirty-three percent less. So we are still getting an increase in prices, even though we are nominally contracting the money supply right now. And by the way, there's already talk now about the Fed lowering interest rates in uh, in January. And when that happens, we will actually, by definition, begin in quantitative easing. So it may be just around the corner. Wow. Because I recently refinanced my house. I didn't get a bad rate. But if it goes down, I may look at that again. <laughs> you know? But yeah, yeah, it could happen. I mean, if the Fed lowers rates, we may get lower mortgage rates. It could happen. That would open up the housing market, too, which would be a benefit because the prices of housing is has gone through the roof. But if you can get a lower mortgage they rate, have. you can then afford the, the higher-priced house, which would – a lot of families, that's yep. their end goal, to own their own property. Uh, but instead, we have a government that's looking to shove us into these substant uh, – what, what do they call it? Um, Oh, good Lord, I just had a brain fart. Sustainable communities. <laughs> yeah. Sustainable communities. Right, right, yeah, right, right. They just shoved me into an urban city with smog and dirt and high crime rates, and I'm going to be really happy about that. Uh, but then again, they look at the economics of it. It's cheaper to control us if we're in a sustainable environment 
than if we are in an urban or rural environment. Uh, not urban, a rural or suburban environment. It's harder to control us. And yeah, the other thing about. is, we, you know, the other thing is we need to bring more. Su- yep. No, I hear you. I mean, the other thing is we need to bring more supply in. Uh, there's not enough housing out there. It's one of the issues as well. Not only is it very one of the reasons why the costs are so high is not only because we have contractionary monetary policies going on, but also because it's just an issue of supply and demand, and we need to build more houses. And that, by the way, also goes toward um, a more uh, a more uh, friendly policy of uh, of hydrocarbon uh, creation, because of course all these things involve you know various uh, various forms of hydrocarbons. So. Yeah, there's a lot of things that need to come together to make things, uh, to bring things back to the way they were in 2019 or 2015 or 2000. Right. One of the things we do have to do also is look at closing the border and addressing this illegal alien uh, problem that we have, because that also will adversely affect our economy and ways that people are not understanding it. Oh, it's, you hear the old heartthrob, oh, these poor people, you know, open your hearts to them. However, the economic downturn that we face uh, is going to be staggering. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the costs associated with a lot of these welfare policies are, uh, are, are you know, they're, they're coming out of debt and they're coming out of uh, money production. Uh, and so the thing is that we have, um, you know, states and we have uh, the nation generating these tremendous deficits and the people who are going to pay for it are going to be people way down the line, my kids and grandkids and, and so on. So, I mean, you know, it's it, setting aside, you know, all of the issues about immigration and all that, that are, that are a product of, uh, of, you know, various policies, the cost part, the cost part is vastly uh, um, overrun expectations and uh, something needs to happen with that. I mean, it either has to be financed or we need to get sort of guest visas or something like that because it's unsustainable right now. We can't keep on spending this amount. And uh, as as we see, you know, occurring in debt markets, there's there, there there are some traditional buyers of U.S. government debt, of U.S. treasuries, who are starting to pull away from the market because they're worried about our ability to repay. So these things, uh, you know, if we don't decide to, uh, to tighten up our finances, especially our public finances, uh, they will be tightened up for us. So it would be better if we did it than if the market did it. Would we as a nation face bankruptcy then? It's certainly conceivable. I mean, we're spending way too too much right now. And ultimately, I mean, here's the thing is, if we can't sell our debt, the government will either raise taxes or they'll start to print the money. And both of those will be even worse for American citizens. It's hard to imagine that the government will choose to live within its means as long as it can tax us and, 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 and print money. But eventually, even those things won't work because you'll have a people who won't be willing to work. And you'll also have you know a dollar, which is losing value rapidly. So um, the, the, the issue is that it would be tremendously painful to reach that point. It would be way better if we could live to, you know, live, live, learn to live within our means and to handle these things beforehand, uh, you know, before we have to test all these really sort of uh, uh, scary scenarios um, arising from taxes and money creation and, uh, and uh, you know, debt default. Well, one of the things they're going to start doing then, if they do get to that point, is looking to pull back on benefits, uh, benefits being your Social Security. Um, cutting back yep. on your Medicare. But these are things that you earned. You turned around, the government said, let me hold your money because you're too irresponsible to take care of it yourself. But when you reach a certain age, we're going to give you your money back without interest. And we fall for it. So now they're threatening to take away the money that we earned so that they can 
fill the gap that they caused. And then in the end, we're getting stuck on I, on both ends. Am I looking at this clearly or am I looking yeah, at Yeah, I mean, uh, no. No, I mean, that's that's certainly a possibility. I mean, uh, the system was set up in a, in a, in a way that um, did not take into account, uh, I mean, a, lo- a lot of the uh, eventualities of a changing uh, population. I mean, it used to be that one person would support one retiree. Now it's something like, between 12 and 16 people supporting one retiree. So, uh, you know, between inflation and changing demographics and all of that, the system is probably unsustainable. But, I mean, it would be better if, at that point, if the government were to give people the, the money that they, you know, that they nominally have saved, which they actually don't, it's coming in, in you know, it's coming in through uh, uh, paychecks and going out to, you know, directly in checks. But to give them some amount and say, here, take this, put in your 401k, you know, and sort of give them, uh, give them their balances rather than just letting it, uh, uh, you know, slide down to nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I actually one time took a pen to paper and I calculated if I put a X amount of dollars aside throughout my entire life, up until the uh-huh. year I retired, I would have had in excess of $1.5 million. I could very easily live wow. on that. And I, I, I thought about sure. that. And I said, looking at the interest rates that they were at the time, and I said, very easily. So why not encourage people to do that and not rely on the federal government? But, oh, wait a minute, they can't do that because they need the votes, and the votes are tied to the Benjamins, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is that it's become such a uh, third rail of politics, nobody dares to talk about it, and nobody will until uh, they're forced to. You know, the other thing is that the original theory behind um, Social Security was that you needed to get people out of the workforce at a certain age to make room for young people coming in. But we know that's not true. We've seen, you know, as as technology evolves and as the economy matures and as, you know, we we, we grow in in the amount of things that we produce, that we have new jobs being created all the time. If you make uh, as friendly an environment as possible for small business people and entrepreneurs, you'll never have to worry about making space for people entering the workforce. And by the way, why would we ever want to kick people out of the workforce at age 65 or 70 just when they have that amount of experience? So not only is it just bad math, it's also just bad ideology and bad economics. Yeah, I mean, young is good, old is not, so goodbye and go into your retirement home. Uh, we don't want to hear from you anymore. Right. Yet you have all this knowledge and experience that is out there with us that they are losing. So now I you're agree trying completely. to yep. train someone to do a job that takes you weeks or months to even train this person when someone could have done it in five minutes. And that is so frustrating. Yep. I'm, I'm not a fast food person. I really have never been, except when I went to college and see the only thing <laughs> I could afford. <laughs> but um, my husband and I went over to a Taco Bell, or as I call it, Taco Hell, and just trying to order something. No, no, you got to go over to the kiosk. Uh, this machine's not working, so you have to go over it, and you have to punch it in. And it's like, excuse me? You know, you used to walk up to the counter, person take a piece of paper out, write down what your order is, toss it yep. to the back, and then your order comes through. But no, 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 you've got to go and do your own self-service. Well, what, if I'm going to be doing that, why don't you pay me the salary to do that at the same time? Huh? About that. But this is the world yeah. that we're now living in. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, part part of that has to do with the the rising, uh, you know, that's 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 tied to inflation. You're going to see a lot more kiosks in the coming months and years because, you know, the costs associated with employing someone, and uh, you know, a lot of the um, the uh, what we call the uh, the bullwhip effect in the uh, in the labor markets have created such that some people, for many people, it was worth it. St- it was it was worth more to stay home than to join the workforce, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, with prices rising all over the, the place, the one area that many these companies you mentioned fast food companies but there's others as well the one area where they control control costs is in the headcount so you will probably wind up seeing more self-help uh kiosks more uh, automated uh machines uh, you know automated um, um teller machines and all that sort of thing over time uh for that reason it's a it's a sorry state of affairs but uh you know, it's not, it wasn't created by us. These are all policy-driven things, and in particular, policies related to COVID, which uh, we're going to be living with the effects of for a long time. We are. Matter of fact, when they started touting the $15 uh, minimum wage years ago, um, my yep. local McDonald's quickly closed down because they had pickets outside, and they were picketing for the yep. $15 an hour minimum wage. And my late husband was still alive as we're driving past looking at the pickets. And I mark my words, within a couple of weeks, he's going to shut his doors. He's going to close it. He's going to retool everything. He's going to automate everything. And half those people will not have a job, which is exactly. He opened up three months later, and that's exactly what he did. But what we're looking at, we're facing Isaac Asimov's iRobot. I've been saying this for years. We are now in the stage of iRobot now. We're, we're no longer having a human interaction. <laughs> it's all now through machines and uh, robots. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, the 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 the, uh, the real sort of maturation of uh, the development of AI is coming at a pretty bad time for uh, for unskilled labor, with costs being the way they are, and this uh, you know the fight for fifteen is really a fight for automation. Uh, and, uh, you know, AI is just at the point right now where uh, it can do a lot of the things that even a few years ago it wouldn't have been able to. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a situation that will probably get worse before it gets better. But uh, I, I try to hope for the best. We all do. We all do. I'm looking at the clock. We got only 10 minutes left of the show. Jeez, the whole thing is going so fast. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, one of my pet peeves. Um, yep. At one point, I had worked for America Express back in the 1900s. And they started a program where they said, well, if you want, you can donate a portion of your paycheck to any one of these charities we recommend. And I looked at the list of charities. Mm -hmm. And back then, ESG was not something was out there. No one even knew what the heck it was. But as I looked at these charities that they were endorsing, only one was conservative and Christian. The rest were all extremely left-leaning. And if I was seeing this some <clears throat> 40 something years ago, um, it has gone now on steroids, these ESGs. But yet, we invest our money in these companies through the stock market and through our pension plans and whatever else we have, the IRAs. And yet, they are then taking that money that we're trusting to them to invest and give us a good return and putting them into ESGs. And there's not a good return there, is there? It's falling flat on its face. No, and as a matter of fact, by uh, by broadening, you know, the things which a company is supposed to focus on beyond just the profit, to all these different uh, social causes and um, you know environmental causes and all that, you know, they're really it, it's really it's it's a it's a 
it's it's sleight of hand because what's happening is a lot of these activist groups are actually putting, uh, you know, their uh, they're putting their causes on your dollar as a shareholder. They're using your money to try to accomplish their social goals. So I mean, it's something that uh, that. Um, should at the very least be frowned upon if not illegal. But that's what's happening right now is that, uh, you know, activists are getting to use your money as a shareholder to promote their ends uh, through publicly traded companies. And and the returns are suffering. We're seeing that now, that a lot of these firms, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're generating less because they're focusing on things besides being profitable. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that uh, I think with interest rates higher now, having gone from, you know, Points, point five or whatever to five and a half percent over the last two and a half years. I think now there's, there's going to be uh, something of a reckoning because when interest rates were near zero, it was easy to, to pay for a lot of different things and to sort of spread one's interest out. But now with higher interest rates, you know, companies are finding hard to be all things to all, all, all people. And uh, as share prices fall, as they're starting to in many cases because of this, um, shareholders are going to take notice and probably take action. May see then a trend going towards back to savings accounts because if you can get more money in a savings account with interest than investing in the stock yep. market, uh, goodbye stock market. We see the problem that Disney is having already. We're seeing the problem with a lot of Hollywood yep, movies that's a great that are example. coming out. Uh, Hollywood movies are going so far left, people are not even turning them on anymore. Forget about trying to go on to Netflix because they're suffering. We're seeing the people, the backlash yep. of we the people, and I think that is the only thing that's going to turn our economy around, the backlash of we the people. Yep, yep. I mean, as long as the market is still going to determine, uh, you know, earnings and all that sort of thing, eventually, you know, these, these, these companies have to make some sort of money. And uh, the backlash we've seen in Hollywood uh, with certain other, you know, entertainment products, um, with uh, certain, certain goods which have embraced, embraced certain causes – um, is forcing them now, in addition to having realistic interest rates to deal with again, realistic financing costs, those two things together are forcing them uh, to reconsider uh, how they're spending spending shareholder money. So uh, it's again, it's you know, it's a painful process. It's going to take time, but I think uh, we'll be getting back to a, something a little more, yeah, you know, in line with historical corporate performance and corporate behavior um, over the next couple of years. I think it's coming. A little bit more of Milton Friedman. Um, you work with the American Institute for Economic <laughs> Research. Tell us about that. We've only got about five minutes left. So give us a brief what, what you guys do over there and how you're going to help us regain our republic. Sure. So the American Institute for Economic Research was founded in 1933. We're a nonprofit research uh, um, organization, and we focus on sound money, uh, personal responsibility, private property, and, um, and, you know, basically individual liberty. And um, we were formed in 1933 by a military officer named E.C. Harwood. Um, he, was a, uh, a, well, he was a West Point grad, and he was also, you know, he's a, a, a real patriot. And he saw things happening during the uh, New Deal uh, and during the Great Depression. He really worried him. And we've been around since then. We're one of the oldest in America. And um, I'm an economist there. We have a handful of other economists. We do, uh, you know, there's articles on the website every day. Uh, we write papers. We have a lot of books. Uh, those books are available on our site and also on Amazon. And probably most importantly, you know, we, uh, we do talks in various places. We do a lot of media. You can hear us on the radio sometimes, as we are right now, and uh, you know we uh, we're, uh, we're 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 one of the last you know groups that really hasn't been to a lot of pressure about uh, uh, in terms of like you know changing our our our, our orientation and our, our basically our, our um, uh, 
our uh, our ideological stance. We've been pretty much the same for the last 90 years, and there's no reason for us to change. You know, we like to be sort of uh, um, principled in that regard. Fantastic. And you do have a book out there uh, dealing with the coronavirus and the economic crisis. And as a matter of fact, um, it's up on the show page that people can click on AIER and go to that website. And if they're watching the video, they can see that the book title and go to Amazon and pick up your book there, too. Yep. Yeah, I, I, um, I wrote and edited uh, five books on the coronavirus as well as uh, a book on the gold standard and a bunch of others in which I have uh, either I've written chapters and all that stuff. So there's a lot of great stuff on the AIR site and, uh, you know, stop by the site, read our articles. Uh, you know, if you like what we say, donate money, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I always say to the gold standard, thank you very much, Tricky Dicky. <laughs> yeah. And then again, he opened up China right, to, exactly. he opened up China to our business, which now they stole everything we've ever created. So again, thank you very much, Tricky Dicky. <laughs> I'm sorry. First person yeah. I, I voted for was uh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so, you know where I stand. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was the first time when he didn't win. Anyway, uh, I want to thank you for joining with us. Uh, and I want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year. And let's 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 fight to regain this republic. And you, <clears throat> you guys are at the forefront. And economics can be sexy if they only learn about them. Absolutely. It's a uh, it's a great tool to have to analyze events. And uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year to you and all your uh, listeners. And uh, talk to you again soon. And thank you. All right. Check out Peterson Earl at A-I-E-R. All right. And that's all we got here for now, Curtis. We're down to our last two and a half minutes. And I'm getting ready to sign us off. Uh, I just want to remind everyone, um, I probably will take off next Friday. Uh, just so that I can get some of these technical difficulties ironed out and make sure it's not my mixer board that's acting up, that it is BTR. And we will see you yeah. on the flip side next year. And I wanted to add that, you know, hello to those in the chat room. I wasn't able to get in there today, so I wasn't ignoring you. <laughs> yeah, I want to say thank you to everyone that did join us in the chat rooms up on Facebook, YouTube, uh, there was a problem with my home page. I have to get a hold of the guy that did the programming on it and find out what's going on there. So it did not broadcast on my page today, unfortunately. But we'll get it back up. So until then, I say good night and God bless. Ninety seconds. I'm praying for this land America 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 The home of the free But there are people making plans To change America They've no respect for her 60 seconds What matters most to me That's why I stand for the flag And I kneel at the cross More for the friends I have loved and lost And I still believe with God we trust And the cradle I fall for is granted us I hope it's not America
second. We've got to rescue her, but you know it's up to me and you to see the truth behind their eyes. Don't change America. God bless America and the red, white, and blue. That's why I stand for the flag and I kneel at the cross. Long for the friends I have loved and lost. And I still believe in God we chose. Oh